is Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Cold Case Canada, The Nightclub Murders. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. According to newspaper reports from the spring of 1975, the Lower Mainland nightclub scene was quiet at the time. Attempts to muscle in by operators from Seattle and Montreal had been fought off by local owners, but the nightclub business was still a wild scene. Don Winterton became the new chief of the Vancouver Police Department in 1974. He had a mandate to crack down on prostitution, and he was determined to rid Vancouver of the penthouse nightclub. In May 1975, Three months after Gail was murdered, newly minted Vancouver Police Department Constable Leslie Schultz scored her first major assignment. It was to go undercover at the penthouse, posing as a prostitute. It was part of a huge investigation that took nearly a year and involved 12 members of the vice squad, hidden cameras and wiretaps. The cost of the investigation was estimated at $2 million at the time the equivalent of over $11 million today. Between May and August, 21-year-old Leslie visited the penthouse 15 times, wearing a short brunette wig and dressed as a high-end sex worker. On May 15, 1975, she entered the penthouse a little after 10pm. She paid the $2.95 admission and was seated in the lower gold room. There were 50 to 60 women in the room at the time, she noted. While Leslie says that she doesn't recall hearing anything about Gail's murder, she does remember that her four months of undercover work were filled with pimps and hardcore working girls heavily involved in the drug trade. When I interviewed Leslie for Cold Case BC, she told me beatings were not uncommon and there was fierce competition with other pimps. That place was filled with corruption on many levels, involving well-known television personalities and members of the government. On December 22, 1975, Joe Filipponi, the penthouse owner, Ross Filipponi manager, Dominic, Mickey Filipponi, who ran the dining room, Dominic's daughter Rose, a 21-year-old cashier, the doorman and club bouncer, and Minerva Kelly, Hostess were charged with conspiracy to live off the avails of prostitution and corrupting public morals. The trial began on September 1st, 1976, heard from 45 witnesses and ran for six headline-grabbing months. Sex workers who were also police informants took the stand in disguise testifying that the penthouse was frequented by up to a hundred prostitutes a night who charged tricks between $60 and $75 per half hour. 
They were required to pay a $2.95 entry fee when they first entered the club and to tip the doorman and the cashier between $2 and $3 for prime seating. If they left the club with a client, they had to pay another $2.95 to get back in, while their client only had to pay once. Male customers were allowed to use their credit cards to obtain cash advances to pay for sex, with a 20% surcharge going back to the penthouse. In a taped interview played at the trial, the court heard Ross Filipponi tell undercover cop Leslie Schultz, We don't give a damn whether you have a trick or not. Once you go out, that's it. We don't ask for no cut off your trick, right? Right? In the end, only Joe and Ross were fined and sentenced to 60 days in jail. But it was all reversed on appeal. Joe Filipponi was shot and killed during a robbery at the penthouse in 1983. His brothers, Ross and Mickey, are also long gone. But the penthouse continues as a family-run operation today. As the Vancouver Police Department were winding up their investigation of the penthouse in August 1975, the West Coast drug war was rapidly spreading under the influence of organised crime. According to the Montreal Gazette, Of the city's 15 murders this year, police believe that seven are drug-related and they are bracing to find more bodies in the coming weeks. The killing that has broken out in the drug community exposes the extent to which organized crime and related heroin trafficking have become a subculture of society in this West Coast port. In the view of police at the time, the murders of Gail Rogers and Barbara LaRoque were just two more casualties in a violent drug war. Gail Sandra Rogers, known as Sam to her friends, was last seen on February 17, 1975. She'd worked the noon to 6pm shift as a go-go dancer at the Penthouse nightclub on Seymour Street in Vancouver. Gail's sister Karen reported her missing, and when police went to check her Kitsilano basement suite, they found a carpet and a claw hammer stained with her blood. 26-year-old Gail's mystery disappearance, as homicide detectives called it at the time, was immediately linked to the murder of Barbara Ann LaRoque, a 22-year-old go-go dancer at various Vancouver clubs, including the Penthouse and Syndicate City. Barbara was murdered two months earlier. What was so offensive was that police told reporters that the murders of Gail and Barbara were, and this is a newspaper quote, linked to the city's seamy drug culture and their associations with prostitutes, strippers and drug addicts. Five days after Gail went missing, the body of 22-year-old Debbie Rowe was found in Langley. Debbie was a country and western singer who'd worked as a cocktail waitress at the OK Corral in New Westminster. The OK Corral and the Syndicate City, which at various times was also called Club Zanzibar, had the same owners. Debbie's body was found about two kilometres from where Barbara's body had been dumped on December 10, 1974, also in Langley. When asked by Vancouver Sun reporter at the time if he thought there was a connection between the three murders, Staff Sergeant Arnie Narland said, There have been no connections found between any of the unsolved murders. There are similarities, yes, in some of the deaths. 
But the only two things we're sure of is that all of the victims listed are female and they're dead. There were also some other similarities that the police may or may not have been aware of at the time. Debbie Rowe lived in Langley. Gail Rogers was born and raised in Langley. And Barb LaRoque's brother worked at the OK Corral. He was on shift the night that Debbie was murdered. The OK Corral and the syndicate where Barbara worked both had the same owners. And both Gail and Barbara were go-go dancers at the Penthouse nightclub. Gail's body was recovered three weeks after her murder in a creek bed 12 metres below a bridge on the Alter Lake Road, about 25 kilometres north of Squamish. On Friday, March 7, 1975, three Americans were travelling to Whistler to ski. They'd stopped by a roadside viewpoint to take a photo when they noticed a rolled-up blanket in the creek. They threw some rocks at the blanket and as the water shifted the blanket, they could see two feet sticking out. They went straight to the Squamish RCMP detachment to report it. Gail had been wrapped in a blanket and tied at the ankles and knees. Her hands were tied behind her back, her feet bound together with strips of cloth, and two pieces of clothing were tied around her neck. Gail had been thrown off the bridge head first. She died from massive head injuries caused by five blows of a hammer. Police believed that she had been dumped in the water less than 24 hours after she was killed. Gail had worked at the Penthouse nightclub for about a month before her murder. Karen Rogers, Gail's older sister by a year, believes her sister's death was related to her job as a go-go dancer at the strip club. They told me they knew who did it, but they didn't have enough evidence to arrest him. What do you think happened? I think her death was the result of working at the penthouse because I understand some of these other girls that were murdered were also connected to that place. She'd overheard something, and I guess they were afraid she was going to talk. Who told you this? Was it the police? The police went to the club and interviewed a couple of the other girls, and one of the girls told them that it was a contract killing. And I'm amazed these girls even talked. Tell me about Gail. What was she like? She was very outgoing. She had a great sense of humor. She was quite funny, actually. You know, she should have been a stand-up comedian. She loved to dance. Gail, she says, was an honours student at Langley Secondary School, where she'd graduated in 1967. Karen says she'd attended the Vancouver School of Art at one time. Just before her disappearance, Gail had been going through a tough time because she'd broken up with her long-time boyfriend, who had cheated on her with her roommate. In the early 1970s, the sisters had lived in the West End and worked at a nightclub called The Factory on Davies Street in Vancouver. Karen was a server, Gail a go-go dancer. They were estranged for a few years and Karen's not sure where her sister worked after that. But shortly before Gail's murder, they'd begun to get close again. It was Karen who reported Gail missing after their mother failed to reach her. You were the one that reported her missing. Is that right? My mother phoned me and said she'd been trying to call her and not getting any answer. And so I phoned the police and I fully expected them to say, well, we can't do anything. She has to be missing for 48 hours. But surprisingly enough, they did not do that. They went straight over there and phoned me back and said there's no sign of forced entry, but her bed wasn't made and 
when they told me her bed wasn't made, that I knew right away that something was wrong because my sister was very meticulous about her bed. They said there was no sign of forced entry that she was acquainted with whoever knocked on the door. They felt she knew this person. And it was a pretty vicious murder. Yeah, it was. A hammer was used. Apparently he tied her up and she was thrown off a bridge. And they pointed out to me that she was tied at the elbows, which they thought was kind of unusual. It was also Karen who identified the body a few weeks later at the Lionsgate Hospital morgue, accompanied by a couple of burly detectives. When I went to the morgue to identify her, there was a big towel wrapped around her head. That must have been horrendous. I didn't realise you had to do that. Well, my parents wouldn't do it, so they were going to send a friend, and I didn't think that was appropriate, so I said I'd do it. But it was a hard, hard thing to do. She did look like she was sleeping, actually, when they pulled the drawer open. Other than the towel around her head, she just looked like she was sleeping, and I seem to remember I had this strangest reaction. You know, they pulled the drawer open, and I was about to say, come on, Gail, wake up, let's go Mm. home, you know, and I stopped myself from doing it because my boyfriend at the time was there, and I was surrounded by all these detectives. I myself in time because I thought, they're going to think I'm a few fries short of a happy meal. And it was Karen who went down to the Vancouver police station to identify Gail's jewellery and the quilt from her bed that she'd been found wrapped up in. When I first spoke to Karen in 2021, she told me that she hadn't heard from the police since her sister's murder in 1975. And as far as she was aware, the Vancouver Police Department still had Gail's personal items. At least, they'd never tried to return them to her. Karen's daughter, Sarita, had contacted the VPD in 2006 to try and have her aunt's murder case reopened. But she was told by a homicide detective that they wouldn't look at it again unless they had new evidence or a deathbed confession from her killer. In February 1975, Brian Honeyburn was a young Vancouver Police Department constable working the night shift in South Vancouver when he was told to head to the Chevron gas station at Renfrew Street and Grandview Highway. About 2.30 one morning, I get a call to the brand new Chevron station, which is located on the southeast corner of Renfrew and Grandview Highway. And now in those days, Eve, there was very little traffic that time of morning, very little. uh, Anyway, I get this call, and I go there, and two biker types, really grungy biker types in a beat-up old car, had pulled in there and got gasoline. Well, after they left, where the car had been parked, there was a pool of blood where the trunk was. Back in those days, it's a lot different scientifically than we have now. I mopped up some of the blood with paper towels and put it in an evidence bag and sent it downtown, naturally. The legendary Detective Sergeant Sam Andrews was running the case. And back then, all they could do, I mean, this was before DNA and all that, all they could do was group type. The blood group was the same as Gail Rogers. So she'd been in the boot of this car. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Now, I broadcast the information to uh, Radio Dispatch, and I had them contact Burnaby RCMP, assuming because it was so close to Grandview entrance to uh, Highway 1, that they would be heading east on the highway, never thinking that they would turn left on Rupert and go over to the Second Arrows Bridge. And off to Squamish to dump the body. Yeah, that's why they gassed the car up so much, I guess. Do you think it was a hit? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. What, what I should have done in hindsight, not thinking at the time, I should have seized the money that they had paid the attendant with. And I, that didn't occur to me then. But I, I was a young constable. I knew nothing about homicides. In 1996, Honeyburn became a detective sergeant with the Unsolved Homicide Unit. And while they investigated and solved a number of cold cases, they never looked into Gail Rogers' murder, he says. I suspect it was never looked at again after 75. Oh, uh, we never did during my time there. We didn't. What a shame. Darn right it is. A lot of those cases still, still could be solved, I think. It'd be nice if they still had that paper that I dabbed the blood up on for DNA. Unfortunately, they don't. There are also no clothes or personal possessions or the murder weapon in the case file. Everything was thrown out long ago. It took a while for me to even find out where Gail's file was. As it turned out, it wasn't with the Squamish RCMP where her body was found, but back at the Vancouver Police Department, undigitised and unlooked at. A few paper files in banker boxes gathering dust. In October 2021, I encouraged Karen's other daughter, Sophia, to get back in contact with the VPD and see if they'd kept the hammer, the paper towels Honeyburn used to mop up the blood, or any other evidence that could now be tested for the killer's DNA. A Vancouver police detective texted Sophia back. The text read, There's a note in the file that reads to dispose of the exhibits. Unfortunately, there's no date associated to the note, so I didn't even know when this was ordered. I can't speak for how things were done in the 70s, but since I came on the job in 1999, any exhibits from a homicide file would not be destroyed now. Sophia was also told that her aunt's jewellery, a necklace and two bracelets, as well as a quilt that her mother had been asked to identify in 1975, had all been thrown out. A note on the file said that on March 11, 1975, the police returned $171 in cash and a couple of cheques to Gail's father. And I'm so sorry to hear about the jewellery and, and everything that had just been thrown out. Well, there was some other items too, like there was a quilt or an afghan from her bed. They had custody of that too and didn't get that back either. And You know, I don't know what else they had, but he never even asked me if I wanted it. I dealt with the Vancouver police. I had to go down there and identify things that belong to her. Has anyone ever talked to you about it since then? Not since 1975, no. There were no fingerprints found at Gail's residence that were considered helpful, and documents that had been sent by fax were now unreadable. Gail's former boyfriend, Michael, was initially questioned as a prime suspect in her murder. A note in the file says that he was cleared by February 21st, 1975, four days after she went missing. The Vancouver police detective also told Sophia that the file contained a note saying that a $200 contract had been taken out on Gail to give her a beating. The text read, There's nothing else in the file to corroborate that rumour. So in my opinion, I would categorise it as hearsay. When I called the same detective, he told me that I would have to file a Freedom of Information FOI request through the Media Relations Department if I wanted any other information on Gail's half-century-old murder case. 
When I've attempted to do this in the past for even older unsolved and seemingly unsolvable cases, it's been months of stonewalling and appeals until the FOI request is eventually rejected with something along the lines of... We believe that releasing information related to unsolved murders could have a negative impact on the ability to conduct future investigations. We are therefore also denying access. The Monumental Scandals Tour by Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours digs into the dirty foundations of the city's most iconic heritage buildings. There's a sensational murder behind the old Vancouver courthouse, backroom deals at the Hotel Vancouver, salacious dances at the old Orpheum Theatre, and the chief of police who liked his gambling bribes delivered in paper bags. This walking tour includes a private look inside the Marine Building, an Art Deco masterpiece built by a rum runner during American Prohibition. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% off your booking by using the code COLDCASE. I have some great news for Vancouver listeners. Those of you who live in the Lower Mainland and love jewellery and design will be excited to know that Erin Haken has opened a studio in Vancouver. Erin brings her degree in art history and studies in jewellery making together with her love of antique styling to create really unique handcrafted pieces. Go to erinhaken.com, that's E-R-I-N-H-A-K-I-N.com and receive 15% off your order when you use the code COLDCASE. Shelley Sermak says that police told Barbara LaRoque's mother that they believed that her murder was a contract killing, that she'd heard or seen something at one of the clubs where she worked as a go-go dancer that she probably shouldn't have. Police also told her mother that they'd questioned two men and given them lie detector tests, but did not have enough evidence to charge either one of them. That was back in 1975, the last time police were in contact with the family. Shelley Sermak was only 10 in December 1974 when her aunt Barbara LaRoque was murdered. But she remembers her aunt Barbara visiting the house when they lived in North Delta. Just that she was always the centre of attention. She was always happy and smiling. Mm. She was a jokester. She loved to joke that she was just so bubbly. She was just living from the 60s, just free, groovy, enjoying life. She was artistic and free-loving. And she was very close with her brothers and sisters. Do you remember what she looked like? Oh, beautiful, beautiful smile. Just the most vibrant smile. Beautiful, thick, thick, dark hair. Just the laugh is what my brother said always resonated with him. In 2019, Shelley joined the Women's Memorial March to honour the lives of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. The march, which is held every February 14th on Valentine's Day, attracts thousands of people and starts at Main and Hastings Streets. Moving through the downtown east side and stopping at bars and alleys and parking lots, places where women were last seen or where their bodies were found. Shelley was there to honour her aunt, who was just 22 years old, when she was dragged into a car 
outside the syndicate club on Howe Street, where she worked, then strangled with her own scarf. I'm glad that I finally get a chance to put her picture out there. I got the picture from my uncle quite a few years ago when I first went to the Missing and Murder Indigenous Women's Walk on February 14th, and I went for her. So at that time, I got my auntie's picture, and I said to my uncle, I said, people need to know that she was somebody. There is somebody out there that loved her, and and I wanted always to put that out there because not too many people knew that she even existed. When my mom passed, that was one of my things that I was always going to do was put a name to Auntie's face. Barbara was the seventh oldest of 13 siblings. She lived in a suite in a heritage house on East 3rd near Lakewood in Vancouver. Her death certificate says she was a restaurant waitress from Swan River, Manitoba. People who remembered Barb or Barbie as she was known to them told me she was a tall, beautiful young woman who had a bubbly laugh and was always positive, kind and cheerful, no matter what life threw in her way. When I was writing Cold Case BC, I talked with Linda Parrish, who met Barbara in 1968, when they were both 16 years old and tossed into Willington School for Girls. That was a pleasant name for a juvenile detention centre that locked up and warehoused young girls. The girls at Willingdon ranged in age from 11 to 18. Linda remembers Barbara as a beautiful girl with jet black hair and brown eyes. She was also funny. Hearing that Barbara was a dancer didn't surprise her. She told me that the only things they were taught at Willingdon were hairdressing and sewing. Dancing was the only thing available for a lot of these young women when they aged out of Willington and were often just dumped on the streets. In 1960, former BC Premier Dave Barrett was a 30-year-old social worker newly elected as an MLA. Barrett looked into Willingdon and found that the girls were taught little that could be applied to the outside world. Follow-up services, he found, were pathetically inadequate. More than half of the girls were sent there for incorrigibility, which could mean anything from talking back to their parents to running away from an abusive home. 30% of the girls were Indigenous, and the rest had been charged with a criminal offence. Barrett eventually got the institution closed in 1974, arguing that for these girls it was a road to drug addiction, prostitution and alcoholism, after which they'd end up either in prison or in a mental institution. Barbara LaRoque's murder file was originally with Langley RCMP, but was moved to the Unsolved Homicide Unit at some point, and there it languishes. This is Gail's sister, Karen Rogers. Well, I'd like to know more too, you know. like I, I Right now I have huge regret that my sister and I were not closer. We only started getting close when it was too little too late. <laughs> I'm really regretful and really bothers me that I don't know things that maybe I should know. And it still hurts after all these years. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. Thanks so much for listening. This story is based on my book, Cold Case BC, the stories behind the provinces 
most intriguing murder and missing persons cases. If you can help with any information related to these murders, please contact the Vancouver Police Department at 604 717 3321. Or if you'd rather stay anonymous, call Crime Stoppers 1 800 222 8477 or go onto the website solvecrime.ca. If you'd like to see photos of Gail Rogers or Barbara LaRoe, or find out more information on this or other cases, please go to my website, evelazarus.com, or join us on the Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada. If you're a true crime fan and interested in the forensics or the latest in DNA technology, you might want to give Nice Genes a try. It's an easy-to-listen-to podcast from a local Vancouver company called Genome BC. Oh, hey there. I'm Kaylee Byers, the host of Nice Genes, a bi-weekly podcast that looks at some of the latest and most interesting science stories told through the lens of genomics. What's genomics? Genomics is essentially the study of your genome. That's all the genetic information that makes you, well, you. Our genomes have some pretty amazing stories to tell, like the mystery of the loneliest whale singing to itself at 52 hertz, or how genomics can help to repair some of the damage that's already been done from plastic pollution. We believe that some of the most exciting discoveries, the ones that will shape our future, can be found in the most strange and unusual places. Check out the Nice Genes podcast wherever you listen from.